Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Soho Radio. My name is Jim Sklavunis, and my guests are Mars Roberge, director, musician, and <laughs> fashion icon in these crazy polka dot glasses, <laughs> <laughs> actor and musician and singer Deborah Hayden, talking about some of their new work. Let's start off with your latest film, which happens to star, among other people, Deborah Hayden. The name of the movie is Stars. It's the story of six homeless women on the hard streets of New York City. The film is premiering on February 17th. What role do you play in this film? I play Bianca, an undercover cop who is kind of trying to clean up the streets with the homeless. And Mm -hmm. I end up with a group of women and I try to assist them as best as I can. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them is a prostitute. We don't fully delve much into the backstory because it's more about the relationship of the women. I mean, I kind of had to create some heroish things in my head. Yeah, yeah. I feel like she's set out to be something and kind of failed in a way. Mm-hmm. Mars, your previous work, a little bit more, well, let's say lighthearted, Scumbag, which was pretty much a comedy, a hard-boiled comedy, but a comedy nonetheless. Your documentary about Patricia Field, your last film, Mr. Sister, they all uh, have their serious sides, but this one seems quite a bit more serious. What was it like making the uh, shift in mood to this kind of project? I was finding that I was getting pigeonheld into my own uh, making. Uh, All my films were comedies that involved the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community. I always wanted to be the filmmaker that could do a film in every genre. And I'm like, how do I break into other genres? How do I prove to people that I can do movies that I didn't just write, other people wrote? And I had a bunch of plays sent to me by this man named Doron Bronstein, uh, Israeli uh, playwright, who I knew from New York as a club kid called Apollo Braun back in the early 2000s. He had a store in the uh-huh. Lower East Side. And when I uh-huh. saw these plays, I thought, wow, there's this one about homeless women that I really like. I think I could do it inexpensively. I see it as a black and white film, but I told him I I fund movies that I write and I make, you know, but I do believe in your script. And all of a sudden I had this opportunity to enter a contest by a company called We Make Movies who were offering, uh, you know, $25,000 to make a micro budget feature 
just come and pitch your ideas with a bunch of strangers on the internet mm -hmm. and see what happens. So I said, look, I'll pitch your play if you're into it and we'll turn it into a movie. And he said, yes. And I went in, I won, beat hundreds of people. I heard about it when we were touring with Mr. Sister at the world premiere at Dances with Films in Hollywood. They told me about the contest. And when I did the contest, I was really excited when we won because now I got to do a film complete opposite. It's no longer a gay comedy about the punk scene or, or whatever telemarketers. Mm -hmm. It's a serious black and white art house drama about women with a famous rapper in it, Radiga, you know, as one of my characters. Yeah, how did she get involved? Well, like all of my all of my characters in all my films, all my ce celebrities was basically uh, customers of the Patricia Field store that I worked at for 10 years. It's sort of a story with a twist because these homeless women, I'm, I hope I'm not giving anything away, but these homeless women do sort of extricate themselves in a way from their predicament. But then the outcome of their change in life is not entirely positive. Were you ever homeless yourself? Have you had that experience? I never used the word homeless, but I was a couch surfer for a good half a year, you know, in New York with no real place yeah, to live. And yeah. I was the guy that would, the people I would stay with would say, hey, go find somewhere else uh, to hang out at uh, four in the morning <laughs> in a winter night because we want to get laid. And be like, wow, I guess I'm homeless, you know, <laughs> I'll walk around in circles in the Upper East Side till the morning or, or find out what was the uh, cheapest place to get a coffee that's all night on McDougal Street or whatever in the West Village and go and do that. So I was homeless. And even to this day, when I go around Koreatown out here in Los Angeles, so I'm like, hey, there's a 24-hour coffee shop if I'm ever homeless again. <laughs> I could go and buy a coffee and sleep in the ninth booth there. So I wasn't one of the people that was sleeping on the streets, but I was constantly on the look for how am I, where am I going to be, you know, next. Right, right, right. The official opening and world premiere why don't you tell us when the world premiere is? So we're the opening night film for the 11th Winter Film Awards International Film Festival, which is where we had our East Coast premiere for Mr. Sister. And right. it's happening on February the 17th at 9 p.m. at Cinema Village, which is 22 East 12th Street, New York City. I think there's still a couple tickets left on Event Combo or just go to winterfilmawards.com. I'm giving a master class on micro-budget filmmaking at 7.30 in the same movie theater at that same uh, Winter Film Awards. And then we're having an after-party at Pangea where Deborah performing as Skunk in the Roses will do a performance along with Colby Cole, Ruth Starr. All people that are part of the cast and crew, a bunch of us DJing. And then uh, we're having the Canadian premiere in Toronto on um, February 19th at Review Cinema which is at 400 Roncesville. And you can go to worlddomination.pictures and click on stars and find out all the information on how you can purchase tickets. I want to get back to Skunk in the Roses in just a minute, but how did current 93's Michael Cashmore come to be involved in the uh, soundtrack of the film? Almost in the way of like when uh, Genesis Peorich remixed my old band Rise NYC, I dreamed that this person, they showed up in my head one day, mm -hmm. and then the next day they were talking to me almost in a magical way. Mm -hmm. And Michael Cashmore on a like or something on my Facebook just wrote me out of nowhere like something. And I said, hey, I had a dream last night. You scored my new movie. And he said, dreams can come true. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's how it happened. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. You have a history as a uh, DJ going back many years now. 
I might as well warn you right now that the sort of the theme of today's show is goth music. What's your relationship to goth? Do you have a relationship with goth? Growing up in Toronto, I was the goth DJ for at least a good decade. I helped put uh-huh. Toronto on the global goth map, you know? Your old DJ name was DJ Mars. I still have my Toronto fan base for that, and I'm going to be doing a, a party after our film in Toronto at Frisaka on mm-hmm. February 19th. But yeah, I grew up listening to it. I grew up DJing it, and it's always been part of my world. You know, in New York, I kind of switched a bit to more electronic music over time. But, you know, goth has mm-hmm. always been my world, you know, for the longest time. The other interview I'm doing on this show is with a writer, John Robb. He's a UK writer, and he's come up with a book called The Art of Darkness, A History of Goth. Deborah, were you ever a goth? Or are you a goth now? Are you or have you ever been a goth? There was no goth where I grew up, really. There was metal. I'm from the Midwest. So I feel like if I had access to that and possibly more club kid type things, I would have been maybe a combo of both of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like Mars, right? I've, I've always been able to like sort of live in multiple worlds. Mm-hmm. I fast-tracked her in the goth when we had to get Peter Murphy's car out of the pound one day. And I had to drive it. <laughs> Is there any kind of story there that you can actually tell? Uh, well... It's a long story. Can't fully go into it, but one day there might be a director's cut of Scumbag, and you'll you'll see the the great Peter Murphy. Right. Okay. He also yeah. borrowed my makeup. <laughs> was there any left over? There, there, there was a there was some left. It's so funny to me because there are people that just find certain people just legends that they would love to meet, and because of Mars, I've like met a lot of them so easily. <laughs> <laughs> in the unusual circumstances as well. Yeah, they're like, you're not even really, like, goth, or you're not even that punk. Like, how do you know? You know, and it's, so he definitely fast-tracked me into all these things. Deborah, tell us a bit about your latest release. The title of the single is Sugar. Sugar. No, it's Sugar. You got it. You got it. By the way, it's spelled capital S, capital H, capital U, hyphen Capital G, capital R, capital R, capital R, sugar. Are you doing some experiments with uh, AI and AR? Yes, only visually. I don't know how much AI I would want to use for music. I feel like lyrically, I think I have too much to say. Like, why Mm -hmm. would I turn that over to a machine? Yeah. You would use chat GPT for, I don't know, some stupid blurb on my website, not for something that has meaning to me. I have too many ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I did two music videos, one that was predominantly all AR. So it's me underneath there. The program is reading and placing these Mm -hmm. things on my face. Mm Mm-hmm. How does one find these videos? They're on my website, skunkintheroses.com. You can also find my YouTube channel, and it's under Skunk in the Roses. Right. And where does one get Sugar? Bandcamp, or it's on Spotify. Most of the streaming places, you know, so I make as little money as possible.
Good afternoon. My name is Jim Sklavunis. You're listening to Soho Radio, and my guest in the virtual studio today is Mr. John Robb. John Robb is an English music journalist, singer, musician, writer of many books. He's the founder of Louder Than War, and John has written a new book. It's called Art of Darkness. Is that the right title? Good afternoon, Jim. <laughs> Good afternoon, John. <laughs> yeah, it, it is the right title, but it has a subtitle. But I see, yes. The Art of Darkness yeah. is the main title, yeah. yeah. I have to confess I'm only halfway through it. It's been a great read. Very, very comprehensive. Uh, you were just saying a minute ago that these days one has to be comprehensive because there's so much information already available on the internet. Where does one go with a book? What was it like researching this? I imagine there's a lot of personal experience involved. Yeah, I mean, I kind of spent my life researching just by being there. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> quite a lot of things are right about much. And I think in a book like this, I mean, obviously the book's a very deep dive. It starts the fall of Rome when I can't claim to have been there. Or <laughs> I can't claim to be hanging around Lord Byron in 1820. But those threads were really important to tell the story. I think um, the musical stuff, the post-punk stuff, I was there at most of those things. So you get a first-hand feel of it, which I think is important. But also you had to go on the deeper dive to explain why those things were there. The much maligned term, of course, goth. But I think that kind of uh, loose cabal or scene, uh, more than any other music scene, needs that deep dive, needs that depth of history to it. To, to explain what it is, I've done quite a few interviews of this, like with local radios, and their idea of what this is, is people wearing black lipstick, full stop. Mm -hmm. So I've unpacked mm -hmm. the whole culture because it's a very artful, you know, some of the best art rock that ever got made in the UK or worldwide was made within the loose parameters of what we would call goth. Right. You're not presenting this as some sort of apologist tome for goth. It's more like a um, broader view of what goth music or gothic style entails showing its historical roots you go way back and like i said i haven't gotten to the end of the book yet but it seems like almost half the book deals with a period before the um, uk goth phenomena really sort of enters the uh, story it's kind of every generation has to deal with its blues in a sense. So whether mm -hmm. that was, uh, you know, being a romantic poet in the 18th, 19th century, or even designing a German cathedral in the 14th century, or a painter, or somebody got a bit into the occult or something, all those things are ways of dealing with the world and embracing the melancholy and the darkness of the world and finding beauty in it, which is a very kind of gothic theme. And it was just to sort of represent a lot of the groups. I mean, some of the groups obviously are much lauded now, but some of the others were sort of pushed to the side, sort of treated as if they weren't doing anything that was particularly artful. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's very much a lineage of something that's been there like for centuries, really. And I think wherever the technology was at hand to deal with this kind of feeling, what's what the Portuguese call it? Can I get the word right? Saudade, you know, that feeling. Saudade. And it's such a beautiful word and a beautiful idea. In my time, that was coming out of punk rock. It was a technology of music. You know, music was so central to the culture in the late 70s, early 80s. That's how those feelings were expressed at that time. Whereas now, if you were younger, 18 or 19, you would express your gothicness by taking a photograph of yourself standing in a forest with no music at all, which I think is perfectly valid. It's just another art form and reflecting the same kind of feelings, that kind of artful idea of melancholy and sensitivity to the world, but with a photograph and not, not the piece of music. And the bulk of the book and the core of the book is that post-punk period. Mm -hmm. And that was the time when it was all 
about the music and the styling as well, you know, and the lyrics and everything combined in that period to create something that's pretty unique. And also that version of it has become very long lasting, you know, 40, 50 years later. Much of that music is completely lauded. It's funny because I don't really watch a lot of television. And I was at my mum's the other day and the telly was on. And there's like some cop series, like a massive cop series. I had a Joy Division demo with it. I was thinking, that wouldn't even get the radio at the time, <laughs> apart from Sean yeah, Peel. Yeah. And now it's mainstream. It's kind of sneaked in without anybody noticing. Yeah. You're kind of quite well known for a sort of what you'd call a, dare I say, a punk image. And your bands, The Membranes and Gold Blade, arguably partake of that to some extent. But the membranes in particular have quite a dark aspect to them. Did you ever consider yourself a goth or did you ever see yourself affiliated with that genre, if I can even call it a genre, or that sort of camp of musical esthetes? <laughs> I think like everybody, every band that gets dumped in the scene, you immediately negate it, you know. But we, we never got dumped into a scene. We actually managed somehow to slip through every single scene and end up completely on our own, which in an artful way is great, but in a business way is complete disaster because <laughs> you, <laughs> it's just you and your scene of one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I was very much fired by punk. I mean, punk, like a lot of people my age, empowered us to actually go and do something, especially when you grew up in small towns. I grew up in Blackpool, which is, I mean, it's not that small, but it's not like Manchester. And it's trying to make culture out of nothing you know there was there was no local art school there was no cool older bands to go and get advice off there was just nothing you were just making stuff up in a vacuum mm -hmm. and what was interesting in this book was quite a lot of the other bands were in that position as well so Bauhaus came out of Northampton which had even less going on than Blackpool you know and it, I was quite fascinated by people creating a lot of very esoteric you know imaginative culture out of nothing and it made me realise that most of post-punk, really, was people who were very inspired by punk, trying to make punk rock with having no idea what they were doing, and ending up very much with their own kind of music. So when, when I interviewed somebody like Peter Hook, or Hooky, I mean, he came from Manchester Salford, so there's stuff going on here, but when he got into music after seeing the Pistols gig in Manchester, he got a bass and had no idea how to play bass. He just kept hitting it till something came out, and he has no idea to this day where the bass lines come from. Never learnt any cover versions. Bands before and after that period, they learned how to be in a band. They would do cover versions. They would learn the art of songwriting, which is probably the best piece of advice you give to anybody. But for some weird reason, that little period from 77 to 80, people just didn't do that. They just got instruments and tried to make the most original thing possible upon them. And that fed into post-punk and actually feeds a lot into goth as well. So a lot of the bands were artfully trying to find their own kind of roots. So a band like the Sister Mercy, you know, people would say, oh, they're the quintessential goth band. They don't consider themselves goth at all. I mean, Andrew Eldritch actually hates the term and has spent his whole life trying to get away from it. But the audience, I think, in a sense, dictates what a band is. You know, it's a shared audience. What he calls it is the M62 kind of sound, which is the motorway that joins Liverpool, Manchester and Leeds together. And if you take a slight detour, Sheffield... And all those four cities, there's a really amazing music scenes in that post-punk period. And it was like everybody dealing with the, you know, the, the post-punk thing in their own kind of ways, with their own kind of local flavors, and also people kind of dealing with the art of darkness. Yeah. Well, you make a point early on about how uh, David Bowie, for example, really cherry-picked from a lot of different influences and different scenes and kind of blended them all together. And in a way, that applies to most of the bands that are covered in the book. 
a lot of them are a lot more eclectic than they're generally given credit for. And as you say, goth is a genre term that nobody really likes to have applied to them. Musicians just don't like to have applied to them. But in a way, all these kind of terms, well, they're, they're not quite so strict. The punk rockers, the um, glam rockers, and the goths, all these bands and artists, they were all drawing from a mix of influences that you know were much broader than any sort of particular genre guidelines could ever have dictated. Yeah, I think with all genres, I think they should always just be treated as a shorthand but not as a definition. It's kind mm -hmm. of a loose feeling. Also, you know, creatively and musically, it doesn't define what those bands are. It's just a feeling, and it? There was a fascination with a melancholy and a darkness. And I don't think people sat down and said, let's create a band to make music that has a slight dark feel to it. I think it was just something kind of seeped in, especially in the UK, because a lot of these groups coming out of the UK it was at the time you know it was the country was falling apart and the government was terrible i mean thank god those days are over eh? <laughs> <laughs> who knows what will emerge from this bright happy uh, new era that we're living in there was an overriding dystopian feeling because it felt like the end of the world as well like you know the cold war was there you know you most people i knew genuinely thought we were all going to die in a nuclear war that was i don't know what it's like in, in where you, you were in new york and but here we we felt, you know... Wow. What else is new? We're, <laughs> I mean, dystopia, you know, dystopia like the uh, attraction to the darkness sort of threads its way through all of human history. There's always um, people with apocalyptic visions. And yeah, I mean, you make that point yourself in the book, how there's always this sense of doom or final judgment or being overpowered by the misery of the world as an undercurrent to a lot of these artists over the centuries. I think in that period, you could actually imagine what it was going to be as well. I think that maybe maybe have provided. You thought nuclear war is actually going to happen. It wasn't like God's going to appear and throw a few burning bushes around. This thing's actually doable now. We can actually destroy everything. But on the other hand, it wasn't like everybody was moping around really miserable, you know, I mean, one of the key parts of goth culture was the clubs, you know, and it was a music scene that was driven by clubs. So whereas punk had been about live gigs, goth was about live gigs, of course, as well. But the club scene was massive. So in a lot of northern towns and towns across the whole country, initially they were called alternative clubs because the term goth wasn't used for two years. It's a retrospective term for the scene. And whereas before there'd been a few Bowie Roxy clubs dotted around in a few cities, suddenly there's kind of like these clubs where people could dress up in brilliant freaky clothes, listen to sort of off-the-wall music and dance to on a dance floor in every single town of Britain. So I tried to list them all, and the list is massive. Yes, I was very much admiring that list. Places you've never heard of. No, no. Uh, actually, there were places I had heard of. Like, for example, Blazes was a place that my wife Sarah used to go to when she was uh, younger, and she's described the uh, scene there to me. The way she described it was in pretty modest terms, so I was impressed that it actually made the list. Another fascinating thing about that culture was, in a sense, quite a freakish culture, but it, it was actually not just in a cool place in London. It was in Keighley, it was in Back End mm -hmm. of Essex, it was in, in a small club in Cornwall. You know, it was taking the styles, in fact, creating their own styles that were way outside the metropolitan areas you know so i think that's quite fascinating really it wasn't a copycat thing i mean there's always the argument where the first goth club was and it was actually probably historically in leeds and it's a phono and it wasn't the back cave and that mm -hmm. was interesting as well because leeds for a big city doesn't often have a sort of pop culture card to play 
Goth was not birthed in Leeds, but quite defined in Leeds. You know, there's a big scene there. They had their own version of it. They had the first club. That's quite interesting as well. So it wasn't coming out of London or Manchester like it normally does. It sort of came from another city. So that was expanding on, you know, all these clubs up and down the country. Goff had to be about the dance floor. So another thing about it, you often get this critique of it that it's a very white culture, but a lot of the music was actually very influenced by black music. So disco, funk, dub. It's kind of crisscrossing mm-hmm. with these kind of mm-hmm. dark, melancholic melodies and going on to the dance floor. So you, you have to be able to dance to it. Yeah, dance like there's no tomorrow. You know, we touched upon the idea that a lot of bands didn't want to be identified as goth. You mentioned that Sisters of Mercy are often identified as one of the quintessential goth bands. Having done all this research and having a quite a good overview now, is there a band that to you really sort of epitomizes more than anything else the goth aesthetic of the post-punk period is there a really standout band that exceptionally ticks all the boxes and embodies that spirit i think the one band where all the threads combine almost perfectly is probably Bauhaus. But they mm-hmm. consider themselves a punk rock band you know so, so it complicates yeah. the issue I mean, that was just their version of punk, you know, with with a dollop of Bowie in there as well. But they kind mm. of reinvented it in, in a way that, at the time, was completely original. So, Bella Lugosi's Dead, even though we hear it a lot, if you step back from it and listen to it again, it's a remarkable record. And they wrote that record in their first rehearsal, when they put the four of them together in a room. Four weeks later, they recorded a demo of it, and that's the track. Mm. I mean, how many bands come up with their classic within four weeks? that kind of sort of dark dub vibe to it it's eight minutes long it's a complete odd piece of art rock which is captivating it's groundbreaking also it's kind of playing with technology as well which is very much important in that kind of space as well i mean where punk had been like a redux of music back to its roots and it was very primal and it was about energy which is fantastic but goth was about you know the the new effects that were coming in the stuff that was available in studios and toying and playing with space and not as claustrophobic as punk and Bauhaus had all that in their sounds. And they also had the style as well. The clothes are black and they had the fantastic haircuts. And Pete Murphy is an incredibly charismatic singer with a great voice. And Daniel Ash is an amazing guitar player. He never does anything cliched. He doesn't play riffs. He doesn't play solos. He just makes these captivating kind of weird sounds, you know. But somehow they make it all into a pop music, which is a very dark, and very sort of odd pop music. But it was pop and they had hits, you know, in, in the end. And... So I think there was stuff going on before and there was stuff going on afterwards, but I think a lot of people recognise Bela Lugosi is probably the point where everything kind of joined together. By the time people didn't go, oh, look, there's the first ever goth record, because it was called alternative music then, and it was about two years later that it became a term. And I think one of the reasons that people hated it, it was kind of a, a sniffy term for music that didn't fit into probably what the music media had as their narrative of the post-punk journey. So Bauhaus got really terrible press for years, didn't they? When you listen to them now, it's baffling, isn't it? And one, one of the joys of, the, of doing this book, and even this, these initial early stages, that people have gone back and listened to stuff like Bauhaus. I mean, they're a big bands. It's not like they have 20 fans. They're already popular. But people I know before said, I didn't really think they were that great. If listen, go, I didn't realise how great they were, you know, and how experimental they were and, and how mm-hmm. artfully, completely brilliant they were, actually. 